And welcome back to the Dave Llewellyn Podcast. We certainly appreciate uh, you joining, watching, listening to these podcasts. We cover sports stories, newsmakers, and difference makers in our communities and across the state of Michigan. I'm pleased to have with me today in studio Todd Flood, the managing partner of Flood Law with offices in Detroit and Oakland County as well. Former uh, prosecutor, assistant prosecutor in uh, Wayne County in private practice since 2002. And pleased to have Todd here today to talk about uh, his career, certainly, but also uh, cases uh, in the news today and uh, some of his previous involvement with a very high profile case, the Flint water crisis, where he was a special prosecutor in that case for a period of time. Todd, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you, Dave. It is uh, great to see you and great to share some of your story. And we'll get into some of the background, uh, sure. what led you to you know where you are today. But because of the of the uh, interest in the Oxford shooting case, Ethan Crumbly, the young man yeah. uh, who shot. Uh, you know, the, the, the four students killed the four students and, and injured others as well. Yeah. Uh, the trials that have gone on uh, with him, but with his mother and the upcoming trial uh, involving his father. Right. Um, it, is, uh, it is sad. It is tragic. It is so many things on so many levels. It is. Uh, when you have something like this occur, um, it's, it's just tough all the way around. It is. It's an ugly situation. Um, I, I think the biggest takeaway in this world for which we live in, if you study these cases that uh, have mass shootings at, there's always this common denominator of mental health that comes into the equation and the study of mental health and what do we do about that and how is it seems as though we're remedial in our country right, to deal with that. Yeah, I mean, compare it to landing or taking and flying a plane, right? We haven't had a, you know, a catastrophe since 2002 to present of a major plane going down. You got to take off in the snow, the yeah. ice, the wind, you know, you got to do a million and one things to get this big, ginormous plane down. And uh, they do it successfully time after time after time. And they have these checklists and they go through them. <clears throat> so when you think about we can do that, right? But we, we can't spot or we can't treat or we can't deal with the mental health aspect. You know, ever since we closed down, you know, in Lafayette, down in, in Detroit, um, you, you, we let out in Michigan a right. lot of people that needed to be taken care of or put into treatment. And um, in Northville, too. Yeah, right? So it's, it's a sad state of affairs when we're not recognizing that issue which plagues us yeah. uh, uh, I think this could have been prevented on so many different levels um, you know everyone's asking that proverbial question do parents have to be worried now are they could they be charged we have cases in the state of Michigan this is not unusual to prosecute a parent for gross negligence this is the first time there's been a mass shooting right but it's not the first time that a parent left a gun out and a child shot another child and the parent was charged. Well, right? sadly, it happens, you know, we've covered it in Detroit numerous times where right. guns are, you know, left out and with kids in the home, in some cases, 
home alone. Right. The CDC just came out with, um, when they passed the new bill that just came out on Tuesday, I think it was 1,200 children um, killed, over just over 1,200, you know, from uh, shooting between the ages of 2 and 17. Think about that, 1,200 plus for guns that were okay. left in reckless areas to the extent, we, you know, how easy is that to prevent? So we have cases where parents have been charged in the state of Michigan that have gone up to the Court of Appeals. I used it actually in Flint as a precedent where a parent was put on notice that their child was um, basically a pyro, mm -hmm. lighting things, lighting things all the time. You know, Child Protective Services comes in and says, you know, you got to watch your daughter, you got to watch your daughter. Uh, she cannot have any kind of uh, matches or lighters or anything that around the house. Mom falls asleep on the couch. She puts her cigarettes and uh, matches on top of the refrigerator. The child gets up on the counter, jumps up onto the fridge, takes the matches and the lighter, goes into the bedroom, lights a curtain on fire. The curtain then catches the apartment complex on fire. A baby downstairs dies. Mother was charged with involuntary manslaughter. She was convicted. She was given notice. What did she do? She didn't secure. Mm -hmm. um, and it was upheld in the Court of Appeals. So it's gross negligence. Is it reasonably foreseeable that something bad could happen? Um, and the answer to that is yes. You have a gun. If you do, you need to you know, make sure you take care of that deadly weapon and secure it properly. It's in, that simple. In this case, the mass shooting, Jennifer Crumbly charged four counts of involuntary manslaughter, was convicted. Right. Her husband, James Crumbly, his trial, I believe, is set to begin March 5th. 5th. Um, he's charged with four counts of involuntary manslaughter right. as well. You know, the, the precedence of it is re relates to a school shooting or a mass shooting. I've heard some legal opinions, uh, people commenting, saying, Ooh, this is this this is bad, or this is dangerous, or this is potentially you know a road that could lead to all kinds of you know different slippery slope. Do, right? you, do you agree with that? I don't. As long as you have facts, and and I teach this right, cases are based on facts. Give me the facts. If you don't have the facts to support the law, then it should never be charged. Never. Um, and that's the type of situation here. I mean, it, it, do the facts ferret out whether or not there's culpability um, based on those facts that violate a statute? And in this particular case, um, not only was there probable cause established, that, that preliminary exam, you know, down in district court, yep. got appealed to the circuit court. Circuit court upheld it, right? That got appealed to the Court of Appeals, Michigan Supreme, uh, Michigan Court of Appeals, and it was a conservative bench. Um, you know, it wasn't a liberal bench. It was a conservative bench in the Court of Appeals that looked at that case, the, the Crumbly case, and found that it was reasonably foreseeable and that the parents did have a duty, right? And they breached that duty. And when they breached that duty, there was enough to show that, hey, listen, they didn't give an ordinary care, ordinary care. Think about it. If you saw you and I, parents, right, and we go into the principal's office. Now, we didn't get called. I didn't get called ever right. with one of my kids knocking on wood, you know, to the principal's office. But if I did, yeah. and you did, and you saw that drawing that he put in front of you, right? Should be alarming. 
uh, alarming times 10. Yeah. And then to note, you and your wife bought your son a gun. Yeah. And the gun looks like the picture. I mean, you're going to hold the thing. You're going to put it in your hands. You're going to look at it. You're not going to push it to the side. You're going to look at that, and you're going to say, oh, boy, that gun, these people shot, blood everywhere. The thoughts don't stop. Right, right. And then you get a counselor saying, hey, by the way, you need to get them in to treatment. Do you leave? No. Do you leave? No. Come with me for a second, son. Let me put my arms around you. Yeah. Let me put my arms. I mean, it kind of starts at home. We could talk about that for in nauseam. But the, the question I think parents have on their plate, no, this is not a slippery slope. It, it's a serious case, an anomaly, I think, because it, parents, this has happened to uh, often, and they're not charged because the facts didn't bore out those, those circumstances. In this particular case, um, I, I believe the facts did um, because they were derelict. It wasn't a mistake. She left the gun in the car. Yeah. The, the jury uh, four-person you know, said, who was the last adult, right? Yeah. And so was, you weren't surprised then with the No, uh, no. I think the, the father, verse. right, no, I, I wasn't. I, I, I think the father may have um, a better defense may have a different roadmap to cover uh, because it was the mom that had control of the gun at the time. Uh, I also think there's something that bothers me and I don't have an answer for it. I'm always looking for the truth, right? Truth, right? So here, if you remember the shooters, uh, you know, when he was sentenced, when he was sentenced, Mm -hmm. not uh, his plea, but when he was sentenced, he gave an allocution. He gave a statement to the court. And one of the things, if you play that back, he said, my parents didn't know. They would never know, right? That bothers me, mm-hmm. right? Because he's saying that, well, obviously they were derelict in their duty. Um, but why, why does he say that? Why does he say that? Um, I was always, you know, uh, we'll ne- we may never know. Just to protect them? Yeah, possibly. In right? some way? Mm-hmm. Possibly. Maybe there's a remorse there. Uh, but his pathology is very scary. Yeah. You know, think about, you know, um, if you watch and study serial anything, serial rapists, serial killers, serial anything, uh, habitual patterns. Um, he starts doing some really demonic things early on in life from killing birds yeah. and, you know, um, some, some ugly stuff. So there's his pathology is, is one that I think he was on a trajectory for some bad things. And it seems as though if, again, you're a parent and you're in tune mm-hmm. and aware and paying attention, uh, if some of these things have happened, seems like a light bulb ought to go on even earlier reasonable person would think that, right? Yeah, right. And I think there's, um, you know, I watched the uh, some of the uh, trial. I watched, but I read. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I have times where I don't sleep, so I, I read. And I read a lot of the testimony. And I, I have noticed, uh, you know, I think there was at least four, I think five times that the school counselor Hopkins was put on notice that this shooter had some serious 
uh, issues, especially the day before, right? Yeah. You know, the bullets, you know, and the things. And, and I have trouble with that because, you know, I came from a family of school teachers, right? And um, I just, I can't imagine not stepping into that young man's life as a school teacher or a counselor, you know, yeah. because teachers were giving notice to the counselor. There was a right. lot of communication right. going to this to this place and and I don't fault them because they were attempting to raise the flag I I guess you know how many red lights do you have to go through before something bad happens because there's a lot of red lights here yeah yeah all right so you say the 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 husband James Crumbly you you think maybe a different path for him originally uh the two were going to have a joint defense right and there was a separation Apparently, a dispute between the two of them would lead to that. Is that how that would work? Yeah, so I, I will tell you, legal experts, um, people that try cases and have uh, joint defense agreements or individuals on the same uh, case, uh, everybody saw this coming. I don't know how this wasn't recognized earlier, but this is not a team sport, mm-hmm. right? You represent your client, the individual client. And, you know, there, there was definitely going to be, at one point in time, there had to be finger pointing. So I, it was uh, not a surprise at all that they would have separate trials. Unfortunately, in Wayne County and other counties, we would have impaneled two juries at the same time. Mm. And the juries would have heard the case at the same time. Evidence against one necessarily you would dis- you would excuse that jury you know so right. it didn't taint them right um if there was confessions or statements whatever the case may be but that didn't happen here so now that brings up other issues but yes uh, dave the, the 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 fact of the matter is um it was a no-brainer from the standpoint that there was going to be separate trials because fingers were going to be pointed yeah. right yeah. um it, what is possibly more disturbing is is there some sort of an appeal issue here? Because, you know, if if I represented you and you, your wife was in the room and now all of a sudden I get your wife's secrets, right? Because she now starts to tell me yeah. things, right? And um, we're all in this together, right? So now I get separate trials I no longer have anything to do with your wife and a joint defense agreement, none of that, but I now have her information, which may inure uh, to my benefit yeah. for your defense. And, and um, those are all interesting issues that I think uh, will be dived into later on. Yeah, and, and appeals would not be surprising. I mean, when you're Guaranteed. looking at the alternative of, of going away to prison for – 15 or 15 times four years. I well, mean, it won't be con, uh, consecutive. It it'll, won't be. No, it'll be a concurrent sentence. The guidelines, I think, the top end will be right around five years. But because there's, uh, so it'll be uh, really simple, you know, if the guidelines and the judge doesn't have to follow the guidelines, they're advisory now in the state of Michigan. But if the judge wanted to, the judge could say, I'm going to sentence you at the top end of the guidelines to 15. So if it's, you know, 57 months, whatever it may be, that would be 5 to 15. So she would be, we have truth in sentencing in Michigan, so she'd have to serve that base minimum of 57 months, let's say. That's the top end. Uh, she would come up for a review and parole at that time. So she's already got two years in, yeah. you know, so she's looking at 
potentially three years before she could do it. But the judge could say, hey, listen, I'm going over the guidelines that advisory, and here's my substantial and compelling reason. That's the buzz phrase. What's the substantial and compelling reason for me to do that? And four deaths, right? So she could do two-thirds the max. So two-thirds, you know, is 10. Yeah. So it could be 10 to 15. I can promise you as the day is long, there's going to be appeal, uh, appeals. It, it, that's a no-brainer, right? That's yeah. going to happen. So, um, and I think there's some issues, but whether or not, uh, the evidence to me was overwhelming, um, but we'll see. Uh, is three years, or if it's 10 years, whatever the case, is that is that the closure that the parents, mm. that mm. The, the fellow students, the community, mm. um, is that enough? Yeah, so you bring up a, a, a big question that, um, you know, I've tried hundreds of cases, so. You're looking for justice for, yeah, for your no, client. There's no but, justice here. There's mercy, yeah. right, on behalf of the victims, potentially, right? But when you lose the loved one, yeah. you know, there, there's no justice to that. There's no dollar amount that you can give. I mean, uh, read a great book about the facilitator that did 9-11 and had to give the money to the families, right, that lost their loved ones. And there's no justice in that. There might be a modicum of mercy, but um, to me, um, it is somewhat cathartic because what happens, what happens is accountability and closure and healing, Right, you got it. Mental health and mourning, and going through that mourning process, uh, or just trying to get some closure so you can start to heal as a victim, is uh, so insanely important. And the court system can help with that. Yeah. It can also hurt, right? When the, you know you're, you're so engrossed in it, and there's a not guilty verdict right? Then what does that bring, mm. right, to the... So um, I have found that in most cases, we, you know, my mentor used to call it the valley of tears, right? It was the valley of tears because there's no dry eyes here. Someone's losing yeah. a son or a, f- a mother or whatever the case may be. Someone has lost their child, um, and there's no happy scenario, right? So I have worked with counselors and therapists on this with clients, and um, it is a part in the process of trying to get through to a stage of mourning to get you to the next level. Um, But I I really don't consider it anything but mercy. It's really not justice because we'd all want to turn back the hands of time. Yeah. Accountability for school administrators. You mentioned the counselor. Uh, counselors yeah. in yeah. particular. Yep. Um, maybe there are civil lawsuits still. I'm not yeah. sure if, if, if there are in that case. Does, uh, does that provide some sense of accountability or, or, or what needs to change within, say, a school so that if, if, you know, if things aren't happening that should in terms of identification and or action in, in cases you know, similar to this, um, how does that change so, you know, some of those red flags or red lights are acted upon? Right. So with all full disclosure, I'm part of the civil case. One of my um, clients is, uh, was shot, not killed, um, severely wounded, but, you know, uh, alive and, and going through 
the process. So, you know, I, so I won't discuss the, the particulars of, but I, I will address the bigger question that you asked. And, and I, I think it's a, it's a great question, right? Because it, in the world we live in, there are great teachers, great counselors, great principals, great assistant principals. Um, and I know them. I know those people. I mean, one of my best friends, you know, is down in Allen Park where I grew up, still vice principal down there. There's great, great teachers and the like. Unfortunately, we don't pay them enough, yeah, I right, think. For sure. I'm married to one, too. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah I think they deserve more times 10 um, and more resources. But in every profession, I don't care if it's a, you know, in Catholicism or it's in police or it's in medical, in every profession we walk in, there are going to be situations where we find people that, you know, either don't care, don't have that passion to do what they're doing, um, don't, don't have common sense for that position they're in. And that is, I, I would say, more rare then it, it's more the exception than mm -hmm. the rule. Um, but it's, it's something that we all have to recognize. And it gets back to the fact that we have our prized possessions in these schools. Yeah. We have our legacy, our future mm -hmm. of this country in these schools, right? And I think... If you want to make everything great, you want to make everything you know possible for for the dreams to come true. You have to throw it into that place, and you have to to make it so it's a safe environment. One, an educational environment. Two, and then you know your extracurricular activities. My father would always say, you know, your student always first. Yeah. You can play sports, your student first, right? So, put the throw the resources into the proper training, the proper counseling, and ferret out the ones that don't belong. Yeah. It doesn't mean they're bad people. It, just doesn't, it means that they don't belong in that, that spot, right. right? And I think there were some breakdowns, not only in this case, but I've studied other cases around the country to try to figure out what is it. Is there a common denominator? And the common denominator I often see is the mental issue, uh, the mental health issue and the crisis, and not being able to recognize that. Right. So or not recognizing it and then acting right, on it. Right, right. 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 So, you know, that whole mental health piece and the work that you do, uh, you must encounter this all the time with people that you represent or cases that you're involved with. Yeah. Um, what do we do about it? So um, it's funny um, because. My better half is actually working on that issue in and in kind of dive deep into what we have going on in Michigan. And I think you'll probably see something about that coming up sometime. But the, the mental health crisis here, if you go to the emergency room, you're checked in and checked out. It's really very difficult. Oftentimes, you'll have a psychiatrist or a doctor that's on call that will have someone, you know, do a diagnosis, and that where is where bad things can happen because you can be put into an inpatient treatment where inpatient's not necessarily the right thing. So when I said remedial, 
oftentimes we don't address the problem until it's too late, mm -hmm. right? We go to the doctor when we're sick. We don't go to the doctor to prevent the sickness. Yeah. So I call that remedial, right? So what do we do? We, we have to have, and you know, this is always, I, I can hear the, the, you know, the mics dropping all over the place. We have to be able to have a place and a resource for the proper training, um, both in the school educational level, all the way through. And, I, and I'll tell you where I represent a lot of police officers. Um, I, I've, uh, I really, uh, my heart goes out to them because they're first responders. And I find post-traumatic stress disorder and a great majority of the guys that fight, um, you know, for justice and taking care of our society on the street. And that therein, to me, is uh, where we need to also address it is within our first responders and um, people that deal with those crises on a day-in, day basis, so uh, day-in, day-out basis. So my, my thought is, is that we have to have the ability to recognize it and the avenues to go for people that need it before it becomes a crisis. When we, and I think, I think Governor Engler, um, and I think if he had a redo, I think if he could say, let me press the redo button, right. I think Governor Engler would ch have changed his decision on uh, closing, those, closing facilities. those facilities. I don't know that to be certain. Um, Governor Engler is an honest man. He was a businessman. He made a lot of great changes in the state of Michigan. But that is one major faux pas to me that we're feeling to this day to this day yeah. and you will see it in other areas and it'll come up with the question of flint and lead poisoning later on yeah and we'll talk about that um flood law your firm uh you know again because of your uh background as a prosecutor i right. mean you're involved in criminal law um civil litigation uh, wrongful death personal injury right um you know how did you go from being assistant prosecutor to deciding it was time, you know, to go uh, off on your own, working with other prosecutors, right, to form right. the firm right. to do the work that you're doing today? So uh, that's a big question. I never envisioned myself um, when I started um, leaving the prosecutor's office. I was either going to go uh, to the U.S. Attorney's Office or always stay at the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office. Um, and I had some great conversations with mentors and the like. And um, Gerald Evelyn, uh, one of the greatest uh, attorneys around, um, you know, kind of sat me down, pulled me aside, and, um, you know, said that my talents and my, my ability when I questioned things about where my trajectory and where my path was going, he said, you would be a person to fight. I don't tell this to everybody he says, and I, I love Gerald, but yep. uh, he would said, you know, you're the, you're the person that the city, that the county, that the state needs to fight for, you know, against Goliath um, and for justice on, on a different side. And we talked about it, in ex you know, and I talked to my mentor, other mentor, Augie Hudding, Augustus, Augie Doggy, and uh, he's, you know, probably had more murder trials than anyone in the state of Michigan at the time. May he rest in peace. But he, he too said uh, and gave me great counsel about 
switching to go to the private side. And then when I did go to the private side, my eyes were opened to so many things that I thought were worth uh, uh, going and fighting for. Um, a violation of constitutional rights, even when you have someone that may be guilty of a crime, but there was... Rights were still trampled upon. Yeah, you know. So I saw, you know, the light, you know, started coming through and seeing certain cases. And then when the civil cases came, um, you know, what I found was is that um, the, the dis- fact of the matter is, is that's where you get a catastrophe. You get, you know someone that got killed or someone that died in a prison and it was tried to be, you know, it was tried, you know, to have a cover-up. Um, we, we've had several of those cases. Or someone was falsely accused, put in prison um, because uh, material was hidden um, on the person. Yeah. If we looked at, and I don't want to get into stats, but if we looked at how many um, people that are put in prison wrongfully, yeah. um, it's a staggering number, right? So, uh, you know, those, those causes, um, or someone is discriminated against, um, in the prosecutor's office, I, I was one of the few that did uh, a couple cases in front of Judge Crockett on ethnic intimidation where, you know, um, minorities were being intimidated in the housing for where they lived, where nooses, and I prosecuted that person. Well, when I saw that going on in the employment area, where there was discrimination mm-hmm. based on sex or race or the like, those were passions that I could I could bite into, um, and then it, you know, flourished. Um, I, I was the lead counsel with um, the 43 people that were raped over at EMU. Um, I have you know I worked on the Nasser case and on the Dr. Anderson case, but um, those those things to me, um, when you connect and you care and you know. That became a real big passion for me. Yeah. Let's get to Flint. Yeah. Um, Bill Schutte brought you on as special prosecutor in the Flint water crisis. Uh, we talk about, um, you know, tragic with yeah. uh, and sad with the Crumbly case, certainly, and the Oxford shooting. Uh, another case, you know, impacting, uh, you know, a, a city, right. a largely minority city, Flint, right. uh, had gone through all kinds of problems, and then this decision is made to switch, you know, from Detroit water to Flint River water, yeah. which led to really a catastrophe for residents of the city of Flint. You were brought in. You didn't finish the case, uh, but you were, you know, there trying to prosecute um, that case. And again, yeah. hold people accountable for mistakes, right. for decisions that were made that harmed residents of of the city of Flint. Right, right. So, you know, the word, uh, Judge Small probably cringes when people say mistake. She's a friend, she's over in Bloomfield, um, you know, and she'll say, hey, listen, two times six divided by the square root of pi times eight uh, equals and get 10 seconds, you make a mis- that's a mistake if you get the wrong answer, right? If you said 2 plus 2 is 5, that's not a mistake. That's just a decision that you make. So there were so many bad decisions here. Um, and, you know, in the big scheme of things, it, it hurts because I lived there for three years, right? 
and it was an honor to serve the people of Flint and the state of Michigan uh, to go back and do that. And um, the fact of the matter is, follow the money in this case. You know, it is an ugly, ugly tragedy. You can't make it up. It, it should never happen anywhere in America. Over 140 people died. I don't think people understand how many people died in Flint from this catastrophe. And if you look at it, it's really quite simple. The Flint water treatment plant was not prepared to serve Flint in making potable water. There was no if and buts about it. It hadn't been used. The only thing that was used was Detroit would fill the water stations, those big yeah. you know, water stations, and if there was a crisis of a day or two or three out, you would just pump down the water from the water stations through the Flint plant to the homes. But the Flint River hadn't been used um, to serve potable water. That hadn't happened. So anyone that says that it was is a lie. But what you take place is the alarms went off, the alarm went off that, hey, listen, my water treatment plant in Flint guy says, over my dead body, I'm not turning this thing on. Can't turn this on, right? All right, so, well, fine. He gets hushed, right? $125 million uh, was basically allowed to be taken from a financial institution, JP, right, to the city of Flint to pay the KWA. They, had to, they were ponying up the money. They were ponying up the money because the city of Flint couldn't borrow money. They were under an EM. They attempted, right? And uh, the treasurer at the time, uh, Mr. Dillon, said, nope, can't give you guys money. You're under this. Well, okay, so what do they do? They create, classic move, they create a um, lime sludge lagoon problem. A lime sludge lagoon, it was like a circle, and lime allegedly was being pumped over from the Flint water treatment plant, and it polluted this lagoon. And they said, okay, we are going to create a contract for the city to borrow money to fix the lime sludge lagoon. It cost about maybe, maybe, good guesstimate, $100,000 to fix. They got $125 million. So they took that $125 million, they gave it to the KWA. KWA then starts their pipe process coming in, and the city of Flint sold their connecting pipe uh, to the Detroit aspect to the KWA. In that agreement I was telling you about, and I'll, I know I'm getting into the weeds, but in that agreement they were talking about, for you to get the $125 million, you know what you have to do? You have to use the city of Flint water treatment plant, right? So they were caught over a barrel. Yeah. So they sell everything, give their soul, everything, all over to um, the, the KWA. And what the byproduct of that was, they didn't have a plant that could properly treat the pipes in the city of Flint. So if you can imagine, Dave, for a moment, you're in an area where um, two things are going to happen. You don't put orthophosphate. That's this chemical that mm -hmm. coats the pipes. And you don't put it in that water. So next thing you know, you got active water, and things are coming down from the pipes, right? Yep. And there was a seal there. And that seal was Legionella, right? 
and then the copper. Two seconds. The copper came down, I'm sorry, copper and lead came down, and the Legionella came down. They would dump chlorine into the water, trying to kill everything. Let's get the chlorine in there. Yeah, yeah. Well, what happened was chlorine mixed with the organic material, and that became a trihalomethane, TTHM. What is that? Let's just say it's steroids, right? It's food. It's food. So as the water went down the pipe, the food yeah. then fed the amoebas of Legionella, and they became these big plumes. And if you lived in Flint and you were down the pipeline, you had an invasion into your home of lead and Legionella. But you had no idea No was idea. Happening. No clue. And so if you were diabetic or if you had ailments or comorbidities and you had these things in your living life trying to, you know, make the best of it, and you got Legionella, you were dead. So my mom, who just passed away, but if my mom, 94, was up there with Parkinson's or others, right, and she caught that at the age of 90, 89, she'd be dead Mm -hmm. well before those years that we had her. So that, to me, right, it's not rocket science. This was really simple. It only became easy after you did all that work, right, but... Um, it's the biggest tragedy, and um, I'm, I'm so saddened because you talk about justice. Uh, there's no mercy there, right? I buried a friend there. I became friends with a lot of people there. And, um, you know, I was with the mother when she pulled the plug on her daughter uh, because the daughter had um, other ailments that were taking place. And we cried together. I, I'll never forget it as long as I live. Yeah. That'll be an indelible imprint in my, in my brain for as long as I live. And, you know, Dana Nessel and her crew, I'm not going to throw stones there. It's not appropriate. It's not what I would do. But we should say that you were in that role, yep. appointed by Bill Schuette, right. Uh, right. Republican, right. you know, change of administration. Right. Dana Nessel becomes the attorney general. Uh, she wants her own people. You yep. know, you're out, they're in. Bottom line is, ultimately, cases were dismissed. Yep. There were no charges, you right. know, that, that resulted in convictions. No accountability. Right. How many millions and millions of dollars were spent oh on, a, on a case that resulted in no accountability yeah. whatsoever? Yeah. No, I, um, I don't know. I, and it pains to think about, yeah. right? Yeah. I, will, I will say this, and I—, and I um, am a, a big fan of Kim Worthy, um, and I like Fadwa Hamoud. We became friends. Mm. Um, that was not, you know, how this all designed. I don't even think they would have ever done this the way they did it, uh, having me out. But regardless of all of that, um, we had proven our case for the first time in the country of involuntary manslaughter against the director uh, of the MDHHS and uh, the doctor for the state of Michigan. First time ever a cabinet persons because we showed that they knew that they had a duty. They failed in their duty. So by analogy, I told the judge, hey, listen, if I was a weatherman judge and I have a duty to tell Hawaii that a storm is coming 
and I look at it, it's on the Doppler Center, and all of a sudden I, I see it, and it's my job, my duty to tell all these people, these innocent citizens, that this hurricane's coming. I said, no, I'm going to have a cigarette now and go to bed. No, I'm not telling them, right? And everyone dies, yeah. right? I breached my duty, but for that breach, right, and was I a cause, right? So we showed that at a preliminary exam stage, it got bound over, and we were getting ready to go to trial. Um, that, and, and here's the other thing, we worked a great team. It wasn't me. It was a great team. It wasn't even close to me. We had so many great people. I mean, we had some of the federal prosecutors that retired that take, had taken down the, the mob on our case. We, had, um, we just had such good investigators team that I was really honored to work with. So from that standpoint, uh, we were all saddened um, that we didn't get the chance yeah. of uh, all of us coming together to see at least get due process. Yeah, and sad for residents of Flint who, again, ultimately yeah. are the, the big losers yeah, yeah. in this. Yeah, yeah. Um, your background, um, uh, where did the interest in law come? Um, the passion that you have, uh, first, again, in the prosecutor's office, but now running your own firm and, and, and the work that you do. Um, you know, I wanted to do journalism yeah. uh, from the time I was very young. Yeah. Knew what I wanted to do. Uh, how soon did you know, and how did you discover your passion for the work that you do up to this day? So, um, I will tell you, growing up, um, I had an amazing family. Um, my brothers, I loved them. I, you know, my oldest brother passed, but all of them, you know, we were very close-knit. We played sports constantly. Um, I still get my brother Paul, you know, who graduated a few years before me, sending me YouTubes of his video <laughs> on foot, the football field over at, uh, you know, in El Park High. And I wanted to be a football player. That was my dream, you know. I mean, uh, I, that's, that's where I came. I was a very competitive freak. Uh, but God did not grant me the DNA to do that. Gave me some heart and gave me the brains, but didn't yeah, give yeah. me the uh, DNA. So... Um, but I was always the guy that was wanting to ask why, question why in school and the like. And um, one of my teachers, two of my teachers, uh, Miss Ferency, uh, you know, she taught English. I don't know if I could, you know, I, I always bragged in ninth grade they taught me how to make a chair. In tenth grade they taught me how to sit down in it. Miss <laughs> Ferency, um, she was an English teacher, uh, you know, basically from Oxford, and she took me, and I was, you know, uh, I was her project. And um, she got me, you know, so we read Macbeth and Hamlet, and then she, you know, she was an amazing teacher in high school. And Mr. Haboyan, who taught law in high school, both of them came together and said, you know, Flood, um, you're probably not going to make it to the pros, right? But we want you to go to a couple programs and got me into law enforcement type things and wanted me to go to college. And I, it sparked my interest because I was fighting what I believed for at that time, you know, uh, going on in life uh, to, to fight for justice. So it was early on. It was early on in my high school career um, where two teachers kind of pulled me aside and said, you're going to be a lawyer someday. And, um, and the impact those teachers, and again, your parents were teachers. Yeah, um, yeah. 
And we all have had at one time or another that special or those special teachers in our lives who have taken an interest in us, who have helped us kind of find our way maybe or or identify, you know, those characteristics that will allow you to be successful. And and they don't get enough praise. They don't get enough, you know. They don't. In my book, they don't. Um, And football, you know, because I don't tell me – I can't. If you say I can't, I'm going to go over beyond. I will run on the treadmill uh, until, uh, you know, uh, someone can't run on it to win. Right. Uh, That's just my makeup. And, you know, so that sports and the passion of team um, connected to the team of working for the prosecutor's office and uh, law enforcement and, and that was what launched my career. And you said those lessons from sports, football, and the wrestling that you yeah. also participated in, you yeah. say those have benefited you oh, yeah. throughout your life. Why? Never, never quit. Never, 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 never quit. No matter how hard you're working, no matter how hard the drive is, you know, you're, you're, you're changing the trajectory of someone's life, right? You're not, you know, curing a, a acne here. You're, you're, you're making a different difference in a person's life to either they're going to go off and succeed and have a second chance, mm-hmm. right? Or they're going to have the mercy of money to be able to pay for, to make them whole. But you're fighting for another human. And that to me, and society, but that to me is where, you know, I still have my passion. So why you say those sports taught me never quit, no matter how hard the grind was and no matter you know, sacrifice for your fellow players, right? And, you know, I, I, I was watching, obviously, we were talking about the Lions, and I was talking about David Montgomery. So you see, you know, golf throw the ball. St. Brown gets the ball. It's unbelievable. It's a great pass. It's yeah, a great yeah, catch. Yeah. But no one saw the block, right, that the running back did yeah. on the blitzing linebacker that just sacrificed his whole body to make that happen, right? Mm-hmm. So... Those things to me, those sacrifices and those um, is what has been instilled in my brain from a very early on. And good enough is just not good enough. So that's, that's where it comes from. So often in, the, in television when I'd meet people, they, they would say, you know, are you, are you nervous, you know, every time that you get ready to go on the air? And it's like, um, yeah, there's anticipation, maybe not nervousness. And the more prepared you are, uh, you know, it really helps with any of, of the nervousness plus experience, right? So in yeah. court, does that, does that transfer to, hmm. you know, your work in the courtroom as well? The, mo- the more prepared you are, the more experience you have, the, you know, less nervous you are, if you will, when you're presenting or, or appearing before a judge? So it's funny. So preparation, preparation, preparation. You've got to prepare. That was uh, Rich Kersunis' lessons out of UAD uh, Law School to us. I took one of the classes for trial. Preparation, preparation. Got to prepare, right? But when you play sports and you played football, and I still remember and I, and I see it and I ask the pros today, I say, you get nervous before you Yeah, of course. You got the butterflies. In the, that's normal, right? It's a good stress. But the first hit, they go away. Yeah. Right. The first hit, you're in the game. You're, you're there. Right. So, yeah. And, you know, I go to the bathroom every time before a trial, before a kiss, you know. So, yeah. Um, once I get in and I get going, 
Um, You're into it. I'm into it. My preparation takes over. My flow takes over, right? I get into the, the if you're prepared and you're competent um, and, and you know the rules, um, everything, you know, you, you know how to do the case. You know how to try the case. You know how to work the case. Um, and that's, that's all preparation. Um, so when you don't have some good stress, some good nervousness prior to going into it. I think it's a, almost someone once told me that's that's a time to hang up the spikes in the in the courtroom, yeah. right? Yeah. Because uh, you're missing something there. So um, people have issues. Uh, they need attorneys. They reach out to Todd Flood and Flood yeah. Law. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we get a lot of our cases based on referrals. Um, a lot of that comes, uh, you know, I just got a referral from a judge uh, out in Grand Rapids um, who I had a trial in front of uh, three years ago, four years ago. Uh, well, it was before Flint, so it had to be, you know, six, seven years ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he referred me a case. So um, Reputation. Reputation, helps. right? Yeah. So I tell young attorneys um, all the time that I've worked over 25 years to build the reputation um, integrity is everything. Honesty is everything. Um, your preparation is everything. It'll take you 10 seconds for you to lose that in my firm if you ever lie, cheat, or steal mm. in front of a judge, right, or in front of a client or in front of a jury. That is the taboo. So reputation is that of character that you and I, you have time in spades. Your character, Dave, is one of honesty, integrity, and you do the things that, you know, keep it in the middle and you can't get in trouble. The same thing, I don't tell clients what they want to hear. I, I am dreadful for that. You know, people don't like to hear that. No. But I tell them, hey, listen, this is not, I'm not going to tell you what you want to hear. This is not a case that I think is appropriate, nor can win. Or, you know, you may feel an injustice occurred or think that. But let me explain to you. And I tell people you know, what the facts are that I believe. Doesn't mean that I'm right. Uh, they have the, the right to go through someone else. But I um, have that reputation. I try to 1,000% of the time, all the time, is follow those simple rules that, yeah. uh, you know, do unto others as you would have done to you. Um, and hit it down the middle, and you can't get in trouble. Um, that's that's the that's the key I think of simple fundamentals in every business, and I study a lot of businesses, yeah. and I think that's you know those principles are are really important. Well, it's worked for you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate uh, this time, uh, the insight on uh, the Crumbly, the Flint, and uh, just uh, the law profession and the work that you do. Thank you for that. My pleasure. Thank you, my man. Great to see you, As Todd always. Flood. Managing partner, Flood Law, joining us today on the Dave Llewellyn Podcast. As always, we thank uh, producer, director, Josh Bowren, certainly to you for listening and watching on YouTube, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all your favorite places for uh, podcasts. We certainly hope that you'll subscribe and listen often as we bring you interesting guests like Todd Flood today. In the meantime, stay safe, have a great day, be kind.